Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10. There's a blue pew Bible there that you can use or you can look on your phone. Read the Bible there. But this is Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. This is the very Word of God. And they were bringing children to Him that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come Follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you pray with me now? As we consider your kingdom, O Lord, we recognize that your love is a song we can't help but sing. The fact that you would love undeserving hell-bound sinners is a marvel to us this morning. 
We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, without whom there would be no hope. There would be no ability to flee from the wrath to come. We thank you that Jesus Christ is our ark. He is our refuge. He is our hope. He is our fortress. And only in him is there atonement for our sins. Oh Lord, we praise you and thank you even that we can celebrate this communion meal together as a church family. I pray that those who have not participated and those who are strangers to this grace, I pray that they would flee from the wrath to come and believe on you, even looking to you for salvation. Lord, we pray that you would, according to that salvation, also give what you have promised, namely comfort, comfort to your children. And Lord, we pray for those in our midst who are grieving. They're grieving the loss of loved ones, the death of loved ones in youth and in old age. And they're, they're in a time of great lament and sorrow. Lord, we recognize that the wages of sin is death, and, and death is unnatural to us. But we do pray, Lord, that even the reminder of the brevity of life would point us to Jesus Christ and we would all with urgency follow hard after Christ, knowing that in Him there is life eternal beyond the grave. Heavenly Father, continue to comfort our congregation, even as there are many who are sick and struggling, who are seeking to persevere in the midst of many difficulties, whether financial difficulties, relationship hardships, working through difficult marriages, working with difficult uh, family relationships with children, whether kids at home or even adult children and adult siblings. Lord, there is many things where we look to you for help. At times, we feel so helpless. And yet, Lord, you are there. Help us to appeal to you as we do now. Lord, even as we look at the state of our world and this society, we can see these things and be very disturbed and discouraged. We do pray that you would cause even our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to repent of his sins and to flee from the wrath to come. We pray the same for our Premier, Daniel Smith, and for our Mayor, Jody Gondek. We pray, Lord, that, that they would be symbols of those who are under your wrath, and yet they have come to their senses, and that they've repented of their sins, and that they would believe, and that they would bow bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, that would, that would be a day of rejoicing for us all because we are concerned about their souls, as we are concerned about the souls of the many millions in this country who are dying and going into a Christless eternity. Oh Lord, make us bold in being able to declare and testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grant that we would not be cowardly that we would speak, that that would be our top note, that that would be the most important thing that we declare to others is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would empower us with your spirit to that end, that in testifying to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we would hold back even the powers of darkness that seem to swell ever increasingly. Lord, in this church, I would pray that you would make us a holy people, a holy people who are who are empowered and strengthened and comforted by your Spirit, 
that we would be those who lean on you, not as, not as trusting in perfections in ourselves, but coming as repentant sinners and leaning on your everlasting arms. Lord, I pray that you would come and do a powerful work in our midst, even as we consider your very word, that you would come and meet us by your Spirit. You would cause us to believe, to believe truly, and to rest our entire souls upon even yourself and your own glory. Lord, act. Do this in our midst. Do it now for your own glory, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've had a couple of guys make a comment to me this morning that it seems that with all my competitive nature, I am upping my game because I have come here this morning wearing khakis and as opposed to blue jeans. Of course, we're all competitive about everything, right? We're all trying to, to make advances. So maybe now as... One guy said, I'm looking a little bit more urbane. Uh, thank you, Alan. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I'm really striving here. But we all do it. We all are looking out for number one. We do. Nobody wants to be in the last place. We're all competitive. And, and, and there is a sense, there is a competitiveness, I think, that is rooted in human experience. And it's rooted in actually a good command, even the command that God gave to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. They weren't just to sit back and do nothing. They actually had to strive and move forward and to take dominion over the entire world. But of course, because of Adam's fall, then that competitiveness, that drive to expand and to get out there and to take on more and more territory, well, it became tainted by sin. And it was the first sin of actually taking what God had forbidden. So even in that, there, there was this expansiveness, this competitiveness, if you will, but it intruded on what God had forbidden. And that was the first sin. Well, this competitiveness then is something that I think all of us have. All of us are on various ladders that we are trying to climb. All of us are using various measuring sticks by which we measure ourselves. You know, are we, you know, are we, you know, thinner or put on more weight than last year? What's the bank account? Is it lower or higher? You know, does the neighbor have, you know, what kind of car do they drive? What kind of car is in our, my driveway? We compare ourselves. We use measuring sticks. We look at all of these things, and we're competitive about all these things. But then what about how we relate to the kingdom of God? Where is our competitiveness there? And in this passage, both with Jesus and this encounter with the parents and the children and the disciples, but then also with the rich young man. I think this, 
this issue of competitiveness comes into play quite vividly. And what I think we're going to find is that Jesus preaches the last place gospel. The last place gospel, and that's the title of my message. We see there as we begin in verses 13 and following, we notice what I think is the good kind of competitiveness. It's the good kind of competitiveness that you see with all parents. All good parents, anyways. Good, good parents want what's best for their kids. That's what they want. So these parents were bringing their kids not to the top coach, not to the top teacher, but to Jesus himself to be touched by him with his miraculous touch. Now the disciples, we see there in verse 13, the disciples did what? They rebuked them. You know, he, they rebuked the people. They rebuked the well-meaning, competitive parents. So the disciples, they did that because like the time that Peter rebuked Jesus back in Mark 8, they had their minds set on the things that men think about. They're looking at, you know, this long lineup of people, and they're all people coming to see Jesus, and they're thinking, wow, what's a way to shorten this line? I mean, that's what every man thinks about. What's a way either I can get out of this line, I can shorten this line, or I can get to the front of this line? Right? I mean, that's all we, you know, we're plotting every time there's a lineup. And, they're, and they're, that's what they're trying to do. Okay, if we cut out the kids, then, you know, keep it to maybe, is it just going to be useful members of society? Okay, those, or, oh, okay, it's only blind people today. Paralytics come tomorrow. You know, whatever it was. So they're like, no, we can't have all these kids coming. Parents, don't bring your kids. You're just kind of taking over the whole thing. It's kind of how some of you feel you know, when it's potluck time, right? It's like, oh, the kids have all gone through and there's no food left that hasn't been turned into finger food, right? But the disciples, they're kind of competitive in their own way. They're calculating who was important in the kingdom, who was worth their time, who would be the cream of the crop to get close access to Jesus. They're the gatekeepers. And yet this is common to mankind. This instinct of this other kind of competitiveness. This bad kind of competitiveness, I would say. And so we have extreme examples such as in the Soviet Union. They had lists of people that were deemed undesirables. Some of whom actually were in the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. But they were purged. Or you have, of course, in Nazi ideology, the Untermensch. And these were the, the undermen, the, the inferior class of human beings. These were ideologies that were evil, competitive ideas. And of course, today, just bef- before we start thinking we're too smug in our society, of course, obviously today, Babies in the womb are the untermensch, the undermen, the inferior beings. 
or the elderly are deemed no longer useful, right? No longer useful. So they're not worthy of life. And even now in Canada, of course, the mentally ill are losing the competitive society race. And so in nice Canada, we suggest to them the option of institutional suicide for them. Nicely called made, medically assisted. Death. Horrific. The disciples, though, they were not competitive and pragmatic in those ways. I mean, they, you know, they, they, had, they weren't doing that. They weren't, they weren't that horrific. But we have to realize that everything related to the kingdom of Jesus Christ has cosmic implications. It's all a bigger deal. The actions were epic. And so these simple intentions, these small actions by the disciples, they were actually going to have these huge consequences, even revealing eternal consequences. So that's why Jesus responds so sternly. He responds with a righteous indignation. It says there, verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Now, I don't think that the disciples were wanting to make Jesus indignant with them. I don't think the disciples want to make Jesus mad. I don't think if you're a Christian believer, that's how you want to live. You don't want to make Jesus mad. You shouldn't. Or maybe you don't think he ever gets mad. You know, I would just, just say, there are things about which Jesus is indignant. Do you, do you actually recognize that? How Jesus has revealed himself is different than the Jesus taught in many churches who would never say no, the Jesus they teach would never say no to anybody about anything. Yet, the Jesus of the Bible, Jesus as he truly is, as he's revealed himself, he does say no. And he is indignant with certain things. He was indignant with these disciples. And he said to to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus welcomed the children who were brought to him. Let them come to me. See, Jesus was very Jesus-centric. Jesus was very Jesus-centric. He ought to be, because he is the incarnate Son. He is the true and living God. So it's appropriate that they would bring their children to him. He liked the idea that parents wanted what was good for their kids. He liked that. And he knew that the highest good for those children was being brought close to Jesus. Because Jesus was the bringer of the kingdom. Jesus gave the secret of the kingdom to those close to him. You remember Mark chapter 4 and verse 11? To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. Or later on in Mark 14, verse 25, at the 
Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated earlier, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom. And as the bringer of this kingdom, his kingdom, Jesus had started it all in Mark 1.15 when he said, The time is fulfilled. Exactly what Pastor Rob was leading us with from Galatians 4. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he started with. That's his starting message. And so it's a good thing when parents want to bring their children to Jesus. To bring their children to repent and believe in the gospel. That's a good thing. And Jesus wanted that. And that's the question then as we start. Are you, are you let's say, competitively getting close to Jesus? Like wanting to strive. Wanting to jump over hurdles to get to Jesus. Wanting, wanting to overcome obstacles to get closer to Him? Or is it a little bit like, ah, it's a little inconvenient to be close to Jesus right now. I've got stuff to do. I've got things, place to be. I've got, you know, I've got, I got a lot on my plate. Oh, well, no. Then you're not being very competitive about it. Like sometimes people, Christians are told, oh, don't be competitive about anything and just, you know, be very passive. I actually think many people need to be actually more active and if they would apply the discipline they apply to, say, their financial planning, or the discipline they apply to their gym regimen, or the discipline they apply to, you know, how they order their house, then maybe if they apply that much to seeking Christ, they would actually be close to Him. It's a good competitive goal to want to seek and to strive. Of course, the Apostle Paul, he uses those competitive metaphors in wanting to strive after Christ. But we're talking about Jesus here, not Paul. Jesus said, verse 15, he said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, verse 15 has been used for all kinds of mischief. All kinds of bad interpretation. It's been used like this massive excuse. So people think to receive the kingdom of God like a child has come to mean that you are basically allowed to be immature. You can just live only by your feelings and you can basically act childish. And that's how so many of the churches in the West have become. They're immature, they're childish, and they're not mature. They, they, they don't think maturely. Paul says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways, 1 Corinthians 13, 11. So there's kind of that mischief that you kind of, you know, it's like, oh, well, I don't need to know anything. You, you know, in my class that I was teaching, we said, well, there's certain things in order to be a Christian you have to know. But there's a lot of people like, oh, well, I know the name of Jesus. I don't really know who he is, but yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like, no, well, you, you, that's childish. No, that's not true. You've got to know some things. 
So it's not, not like a child in that way. But the other, the other mischief, I would say, that's applied here is the idea that children receive the kingdom passively and they don't have to believe for themselves. Children have to believe too. They don't, they don't just then... It, it, he doesn't say to receive... Yeah, you, can, you, you are a child. It's like a child. The ana- it's an analogy. It's, it's then that simile using like or as, like a child. The main point here is, is that the parents are doing their best to raise their children, and they have realized that Jesus is who they need to bring their children to. They need to bring their kids to Jesus. And having come themselves to Jesus does not bring their children to Jesus. They needed to bring their children to Him too. Now, there are other texts which some will argue wrongly, I think. And they will, they will assume that children, the children of those who have come to Jesus automatically come with them. And so then those children should be baptized. Those infants, those babies. But this verse highlights the importance of evangelizing your children. That's what we do here, in case you didn't know. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why I have catechism class that some of the kids are off at. We believe in evangelizing our kids. We believe in offering them the hope of the gospel, of actually bringing them to Jesus. Are we hopeful that they will be saved? Absolutely. Hopeful and expectant. But we share the gospel with them because we want them to believe. And so we ought to be, in a sense, those competitive parents doing all that we can to bring our children to Jesus. We can't save them, only Jesus can. So all we do is we just want to keep pointing them to Jesus, point them to Jesus. And maybe when they're 25 or 35 or 45 or 85, you'd have to be pretty old, I guess, if you're the parent and they're 85. I guess you'd be like, you know, 105. Maybe that's getting a little up there. You're pointing them to Jesus. The childlike element is the element of dependence or reliance, right? That's what Jesus is getting at. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, the childlike element is the element of dependence or reliance. Children, as we say, children, when you put them on your tax form, they're called what? Dependents. How many dependents you got? You know, well, they're, yeah, they're dependent. On, you know, until they're old enough to put food on their own table, well, you got to put food on the table for them. They're dependents. So like a child, all people are called to depend on Jesus Christ. You're called to depend on Him, to lean on Him, which is another way of saying to believe in Him. Believing is Depending upon him. Uh, faith, what we you know, speak of belief, faith is, as the 1689 Baptist Confession says, faith is accepting 
and resting upon Him alone. It's depending on Him, resting on Him alone, not Him and ten other things. It's resting on Him alone. And that's what kids do. They, they rest on their parents, not on the parents down the street. They rest on their own parents. And true saving faith is then believing and depending like a child, like a child, depending upon Christ alone. And therefore, receiving, receiving, accepting, resting on then him and his kingdom. So that's when Jesus illustrated his actions. Verse 16, he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, in this way, I, you can see, I, I, I commend all the parents here who are competitive in this good way. Because you're bringing your children to Sunday school, you're bringing them to hear God's Word preached, you're teaching the catechism at home, you're singing from the hymnal, you're doing it, it's all, you're, you're doing it all imperfectly, but you're trying to do it. You're just trying to point them to Jesus. You're praying for your children. You're, you're, doing all these, you're, you're working through hard questions with your children. You're doing it because you're trying to bring them to Jesus. Jesus has to save them. But you're bringing them along with every means that's available to you. All of these efforts are attempts to bring your children to Christ. And so I just, I just pray that God would bless you if you're a parent here bless you in your efforts. And, and if you're not doing that and you're thinking, wow, I, <laughs> I don't know, that's not happening in our house, then, then, then talk, talk to us. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. Talk to somebody in your pew. Make a start. We're here to help you to do that. It's not just showing up here, you know, and your kids aren't involved. No, no, that's what we want to help you is to bring your children to Christ. That's, that's such a wonderful rejoicing and Jesus Jesus blesses those efforts but then there's this other episode here and you think okay well he's talking about the children then he's going to do the rich young man and like you think well yeah they're almost two separate things but I actually think it's all connected because I think it's another episode involving this competition and that's this encounter a very famous encounter between Jesus and and the rich young man. You see it there as we begin in verse 17. Setting out on his journey, man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you know what it's like. You've all had the experience. You know what it's like when someone is over-enthusiastic and they flatter you. You know, you, you start thinking, what are you trying to sell me? Right? That's, uh, you immediately think that. Uh, you know, the telemarketers that call me at, I think, 5 o'clock every day? Is, is that the same for you? They've got it. Like, I just know. 5 o'clock, you know, th- that I'm getting that phone call. And they always start, hello, how are you doing today? And, and I'm like, it seems so friendly, but it's too, fa- too familiar for a stranger. And, you know, I'm like, who are you? Like, what, what are you, why are you calling me, you know, at my personal line? And generally I say something, well, can I call you back at your house a little later on? You know, can I do that? They don't, they don't, 
they don't give out their home number to me. But Jesus saw right through this. Now, this is a man who is competitively trying to get close to Jesus. But maybe with wrong motives. That's what we're not sure about. And there's lots and lots of people like that. They want to get close to religion. They want to get close to Jesus. They want to get close to church. But, as Paul said, they, they want to use godliness as a means of gain. And there is a lot of that. So this competitive young man, he's like, oh, that's, that's the guy from Nazareth. Hey, I want to get your autograph. And he calls out, good teacher. And of course, Jesus then, he goes straight to it. He said, why do you call me good? And with that question, why do you call me good? Jesus, he, he gets right to it. Jesus is always, he always has the precise, the concise slice right through the argument. Just goes right to it. Because this is profound. He's getting at, why do you call me good? In other words, what is your criteria for what is good? What constitutes what is good? And why do you think Jesus qualifies or fits that categorization? He's asking, what is your moral framework? Why do you call me good? What is it based on? I mean, these moral categories, where does it come from? Cornelius Van Til said, I hold rather that unless you believe in God, you can logically believe in nothing else. He also said, it's not kindness to tell patients that need strong medicine that nothing serious is wrong with them. And so, that is what Jesus is doing with this simple question. Why do you call me good? What is the basis? What is the ground? It might be the same for you. You might say that you see all these ills in society and you say, oh, well, they're bad. But the question is, why? Why are they bad? What gives you the grounding to say they're bad? Do you know? Eh, I just got a feeling they're bad. You know, I was talking at the rodeo the other day with some guys and and like, yeah, they, they, they had correct understanding about what some good things and some bad things in society. But they had no basis. They didn't know why. And if I pressed them, they didn't know why. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't actually say what was good and bad and where it comes from. Their, their moral framework didn't have good grounding. So what's the ground? And Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. So Jesus is really getting at what is the biblical grounding for morality. How do you know what is right and wrong? Well, you have to know that only God is good. He is the definition of goodness. He defines it. You know, this is where you get in first year university philosophy class and you start asking these philosophical questions to try to impute motive to God and somehow think that God is bad. But that would mean to have a moral framework that you're applying to God 
Rather than God is the one who reveals a moral framework and God says this is good and this is bad. And if you don't, you don't think that or you don't believe that, go ahead and take the secular moral framework that changes all the time and it tells us that evil, wicked things that you know are evil and wicked, it tells you that you are supposed to celebrate those things. That, that is wicked. But Jesus believed the Bible. He believed the Bible. Psalm 14.1 or Psalm 53 verse 1 both the same. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and vile in their ways. There is no one who does good. Jesus is just restating that. No one is good except God alone. Psalm 143 verse 2. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one alive is righteous before you. But Jesus also believed. Psalm 119, verse 68, he said about God, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Is that how you felt this week? If you felt that God is good and does good through all the difficulties and calamities that you've had, he told the rich young man, no one is good except God alone. And that's, that's a, question, a question for us. Because you might, be, you might have come this Sunday morning, and I know the people here. I don't know all of you, but I know most of you. I know the things that everybody's going through. And I mean, my guess is, that there's been instances where you've doubted it a little bit because things haven't been going very well. You've doubted whether God is good. You've, you know, maybe there have been things, as we have heard from our church family, maybe there's been some things that are downright tragic. And have you stopped thinking that God is good and does good? See, Jesus, even speaking according to the human nature, he believed that God is good. And it's, it's critical to see that. But then Jesus proceeded to teach the rich young man, teach God's statutes, God's commandments, straight from Exodus 20, straight from the Ten Commandments. Jesus taught the law to this rich young man. He said, verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, if no one is good except God alone, what happens when the law is applied to us? It, it exposes our sin. But the rich young man, a Jewish man, he said, verse 7, or he said, verse 20, rather, he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, I like to, you know, extend this guy a little bit of grace. Maybe this is an expression of a faithful Israelite. He's a law keeper. And when he breaks the law, he goes to the priest, he makes the offering to atone for his law breaking, and so he thinks that he's a law keeper. But he's not really a law keeper, because he's a law breaker. He's just, there is a sacrificial system in place to mitigate the fact that he breaks the law. But this rich young man, competitively, he wants to get religion right. He's sincere, he's enthusiastic, but he is not in the kingdom of God. Now, it's also interesting, what was Jesus' attitude towards this guy? 
Does Jesus just drop the hammer on him? No, it's, it's amazing. Mark records it this way, verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. There, there is a kind of love which Jesus has for the sincere, but for the sincerely wrong. It's not his saving love, but it is this compassionate love towards someone who thought they're on the right track, but who is actually lost. It's very hopeful when you see that person. They think they're on the right track, but they're actually lost. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus did not tell the man to become a communist. Okay? I don't... Yeah, I was going for a joke. Maybe one person laughed. This is too political. Political is not funny. Um, the, redi- the redistribution of wealth was not the primary focus, even though sometimes people go to this verse for that. Jesus says about, there's about three things he says here, but he's getting at one thing. He said, come, follow me. The one thing is to follow Jesus. But following Jesus is relinquishing any treasure that would hold you back. Even the young man's law-keeping needed to go. He had to let go of that. All of his self-trust and his ability to keep the law. He had to let go of that track record. But it would all be represented in letting go of his earthly possessions so that he would have treasure in heaven. And of course we know his response, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away rejoicing? No, sorrowful, for he had many possessions, great possessions. See, Jesus had exposed this young man's heart. The guy had competitively acquired possessions, you know, like an oil patch pipeliner or a TikTok influencer. You know, whoever dies with the most toys wins. You know, it used to be that bumper sticker you'd see driving around on a jacked up 4 before around it in Alberta, right? No, no, whoever dies with the most toys dies, right? Jesus calls all people, all people, to relinquish their hold on everything and to come and he says follow me so we have to relinquish our hold on them because they have a hold on us when jesus looked around verse 23 and he said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god this is not just rich people. This is not the 1%. This is everyone who has wealth. In other words, it is everyone, from the homeless man to the CEO, from the Bedouin in a tent to the Titan in the boardroom, everybody. Verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. In other words, they don't know what this guy's talking about. Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The point 
I and mean, it's not if you've heard that little illustration about the camel in the camel gate in Jerusalem. He's got to go de- camels go down on their knees to express their humility to get in. That's that's all bunk. The point is that it's impossible. That's the point. Camels don't go through eyes of needles. It's impossible. The things that we possess and that possess us make it impossible for us to be saved because we're clinging to this life. See, we have to be very clear now how shockingly universal this is. It's impossible for anybody to be saved. And for once, the disciples got it. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who? Who can be saved? Who who can be saved? Because the logical answer is nobody can be saved because everyone has earthly claims. They're owning and owing and being owed and being owned. And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. Not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, this is not a pull-out verse to use to acquire health and wealth by saying, oh, all things are possible with God. If you do that, you are totally missing the context. It's the exact opposite of the context. The point is that salvation is impossible. Sinners cannot save themselves. It's impossible. You can't think your way to heaven. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't spiritualize your way to heaven. Because you are lost. You cannot be saved because you cannot save yourself. And there's no one else who can save you. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Do you believe that He can save you and will save you? Do you believe that He's able to save the unsavable? It's always a good test. Do you believe that he's able to save Justin Trudeau or Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin or just pick whoever your preferred villain is? It's impossible for them to be saved. Uh, But all things are possible with God. God could save them. Do you believe that he's able to? And then that brings us then to the last place gospel first place is always the default that's the desire we're built to be competitive to take dominion so to not do that is a failure to be a human being i think the problem is that because of sin we are running scared where we don't want to be left behind because if we're left behind we're weak to win is to to win is the glory but to not win is shameful and embarrassing last place is weak but what if what if we change the measuring stick What if we changed the category? What if we changed the priority? What if we changed all that? You see, Peter is thinking about all this in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, 
we have left everything and followed you. He's saying we're in last place here. We're losing. We're, we're, we're a failure. We gave it all up. And Jesus' point is that the kingdom has come and all previous categories, rankings, and measurements are obsolete because he says in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one left who has left, there is no one who has left house and brothers and sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. That's the first part. And that's the losing part. It's the letting go part. This part that Peter was trying to reckon with. It's letting loose your grip on all your possessions and all that possesses you. Letting it all go for Jesus and for the gospel. It is the call of discipleship. It is the call for young people. It's the call for old people. It is letting go, not like a Buddhist monk. It is letting go and embracing Jesus. It is, as Revelation 14.4 says, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. He goes right, you go right. He goes left, you go left. He goes forward, you go forward. He goes back, you go back. It's not, oh yeah, well I'm going, but just a second here. I've got some stuff. No, no. Jesus promises abundance. He says of those who have left everything that they will receive and they will be receivers. He says in that first clause of verse 29, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left. And then there's the list for my sake and the gospel. He says then the second part, verse 30, Who will not receive? So you've left stuff, you're going to receive stuff. What are you going to receive? Three things. This is what you're going to receive. First, they will receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Did you know that when you believe in Jesus Christ, you immediately gain a family that you didn't have? That every house of the Lord that worships Jesus truly is a place that is welcome to you? That every country you go to where you hear the sound of the gospel, it feels like home? You get all of this in this life. It's amazing. The elders were just talking about it this morning. You can have a death in the family, as many of you are grieving even this morning. And yet, you've got all this family. You've got all this family supporting you, coming around you. And you've got that when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you get. That's the first thing you receive in this life. Secondly, it will come with persecutions. That's part of the deal. Because persecutions are simply the attack of the old age against the age to come. That's all they are. If you believe in Jesus, you're actually making the switch. You belong to Jesus and His kingdom come. You belong to the kingdom, the kingdom with its presence of the future. That's what you belong to. 
Persecution is just a way of attacking the kingdom of Jesus and resisting the inevitable incoming kingdom. So that's why they're attacking you, because you belong to a different age. It's a spiritual battle. That's what persecution is. But you get that. And third, you get in the age to come eternal life. You get eternal life. The age to come brings your possession, eternal life. Since the age to come is broken into present, you possess eternal life now, but then you will enjoy it unhindered forever. But you have it now. Then you will enjoy it. It's like, you know, oh, you get your inheritance now. You, you own a, a cabin by the lake. But then you, you actually go to the lake and you enjoy the cabin. You got it now, but I just got to get there. I just got to get there and enjoy it. And that's what you have. You have the eternal life possessed now. It's a profound truth of belonging to the age to come. And that's what we should all seek and to shed any weight of hindrance that would hold us back from seeking His kingdom. But in the meantime, this will mean that we will look like we are in the last place on earth. We'll be the losers. Paul even said he was like the scum of the earth. That's how he's viewed. But Jesus was very clear about this. His last place gospel. It's not saying we aren't competitive. not saying we strive. not saying we offer the... The work of our hands is worship to God and seek and strive in this life. But it is, comparatively, we are not in first place in this life because we want to be first, li- first place in the life to come. Verse 31, but many who are first will be last. And the last, first. In this time, in the age to come, the overlap of the age is the now and the not yet. We have the blessings with trials now, but the blessings with no more trials then. And Jesus' last place gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. We ought to be competitive in seeking Christ in the age to come. I mean, again, I've said it a few times over the years, but really, how often do we meditate on heaven? Really, you, me, this week, thought a lot about it? Not much, probably. Just if you're like me, you're thinking about what's in front of your nose. But, but then that, that is where we're going. That is our destiny. And that's where we're in first place, because Christ is in the first place. It means losing our possessions and what possess us in this life. But when we do that, we gain exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. For as we are told... In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. Well, I close, keeping us here a while, long service, communion service. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, he just said this. God makes many rich and many great and many honorable and many mighty and many wise and many noble and many beautiful and many successful whom he will never make holy. He will never make holy. But in making you holy, God has made you spiritually great, spiritually rich, 
spiritually honorable, spiritually wise, spiritually beautiful. Holiness is a singular fruit of God's special love and favor. That's what it means to be put in the first place. You have then that distinctive. And so as we bring our children to Jesus, as we seek His kingdom come, as we seek competitively to be close to Jesus, let us let go of what possesses us, what possesses our hearts. Let's be open-handed about these things. And let us see that even though it appears that we might be last place in this life, last place in this society, we are close to Jesus. And the reward is spectacular. And it is the only way for lost people like you and for me to be saved. It's the only way. Because all things are possible with God. Praise be to Him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that You would do the impossible and You would save many today. Save them because we can't save ourselves. Glorify Yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship this true and good God. I invite you, if you need counsel, you need just a word of encouragement, you need to talk to a pastor, you can come and talk to me afterwards. Just in the sacristy, you can come up by the piano and just talk to Jared Carey, and he'll get you sorted for coming and you can have a short talk with me or you can talk with one of the elders or talk with anybody here. But we consider being held fast and we cherish then these precious words as a benediction. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. That's the clarifying line. But what a privilege to be a child of God. Look to Him in faith. Go in peace. You're dismissed.